Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Lucy, the custom content producer here at Technology Networks, and today we're talking all things organoids. Today's podcast is kindly sponsored by Brooker. And I'm joined in today's podcast by Technology Network senior science writer Rory McKenzie. How are you, Rory? Hi, Lucy. I am well and looking forward to discussing this topic with you. Thanks, Rory. It's a really interesting discussion, actually, and one I think that's increasingly important. But before we get into the research, I thought I'd give a quick introduction to organoids in general. So to study disease, human development and drug therapies, scientists have previously relied on 2D cell cultures or animal models, both of which have their limitations. But research on stem cells and developmental biology has made it possible to grow small bits of tissue in their lab called organoids. And scientists have created organoids that closely resemble a whole host of organs from the liver and kidneys to our brains. These organoids grow from stem cells, which are the cells that can divide indefinitely and produce different types of cells. And scientists have to learn how to create the right environment for stem cells in order for them to grow, because just like you give flowers in the garden the right environment, these cells need a very specific environment in order to flourish. And once they do so, these cells can follow their own genetic instructions to self-organize and form tiny structures that resemble miniature organs. These miniature organs can range in size from less than the width of a single hair to around five millimeters. And the benefits are that they're 3D rather than 2D, allowing them to much more closely mimic natural physiological processes. Now, there are potentially as many types of organoid as there are different tissues and organs in our body. And because having these miniature organs means it's possible for us to study aspects of the organs in the lab, it's potentially revolutionizing the field of drug discovery and it opens a whole new approach to personalized medicine. In the long run, cultured miniature organs could be used to replace transplant organs from donors. And they also hold huge promises in gene therapies too. Now, the thing is that organoid research is, in scientific terms, kind of just getting started. Now, the first organoid research papers were published around about 10 years ago. And in the start of the 2010s, there was a flurry of research. Uh, Scientists were developing organoids for structures in our gut and our brain primarily. And, you know, just uh, 10 years later, (laughs) this isn't an exhaustive list. We'd have organoids mimicking deep breath, our optic cup, salivary gland, thyroid, mammary glands, liver, kidneys, pancreas, fallopian tubes, bladder, and prostate. Whew. That, was a, that was a tough list to get through. Um, it's a field that has advanced rapidly. And alongside this advance, the number of systems we have available, there's also been rapid advances in the applications of these organoids. Now, unlike the advance given by a, maybe a single research paper, The advent of organoids has really opened up a whole new way of conducting biomedical research. We should think of organoids in the same way we think of a transgenic mouse, for example, in terms of the potential benefits to research that the system can give. Now, for organoids, which have now expanded to all these different areas of the body and different um, types of disease systems, for example, there's now organoids that mimic uh, disease states and cancer, so you can study cancer drug responses. There's organoids for cystic fibrosis research. There's some interesting ones being done for Zika virus infection. This is particularly pertinent because the developing brain is mimicked by brain organoids and Zika virus tends to have its most severe effects on the developing brain. So it's a a perfect fit for these organoid systems. And even beyond questions of pathology and disease, you can answer pretty abstract questions using uh, these brain organoids. For example, why are human brains so big? 
Now, this question was recently interrogated by the lab Madeleine Lancaster, who's a group leader at the MRC's Laboratory of Molecular Biology. Now, Madeleine was also first author on what is now really considered the seminal brain organoid paper, which is published all the way back in 2013. In this, most, in this more recent study, Madeleine and her team asked this question of you know, human brains there. Clearly, the, the, the largest brains as compared to the body of, of any primates and the comparison to chimpanzees or uh, to gorillas, for example, makes clear that human brains are, for some reason, just a lot bigger. But we've never really had an answer why. And in the Brain Organoid Research, Madeleine's team were able to show that organoids in the same way were much bigger, even just after five days of development, if they came from human stem cells as opposed to ape stem cells. And with just that divergence happening in the first few days, this is before even neurons have formed in the brain. The entire organoid structure is just made of neuroepithelial cells at this point. So it's a, a really fundamental change. And the team were then able to go into their organoids and identify a particular gene switch that could alter the development of these organoids. Uh, switching it one way made brain organoids look more like ape organoids in size and making the, the reverse switch in ape organoids made them uh, grow in the same way that the human brain organoids did. So these organoids clearly have huge potential, although as I'm sure we'll hear today, they have significant limitations too. But as you said, Lucy, they really are an incredible tool for simulating the inner workings of the human body. So with all this, it's no surprise really that it's become a bit of a hot topic. So for today's podcast, we're actually really lucky to speak with Professor John Mason from the University of Edinburgh. And John is particularly interested in understanding the molecular mechanisms that regulate embryonic development in the forebrain and how neurodevelopment disorders such as autism can arise when these mechanisms are a bit disturbed. He uses a wide range of techniques in his work using organoids to understand the brain, and he's recently published work on using organoids to study human brain development and evolution. You're about to hear our interview with John in full. Hi, John. How are you today? I am very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, so I'll get straight into it uh, with our first question, which is when did organoids first start to emerge in research and what makes them so exciting? Uh, okay, so um, talking about brain organoids specifically, which is is the the kind that we work with. Um, mm -hmm. Really, I became aware of their their potential when a paper came out in twenty thirteen from Madeleine Lancaster, who at that point was working in Jurgen Knobloch's lab in Vienna, and it was a, a high profile paper in Nature, and it showed an absolutely beautiful picture of an organoid showing this structure that had been grown from stem cells that looked for all the world like a little piece of, of embryonic human brain, all the right cell types, all arranged in the right way. And just um, really for me encapsulated the, the potential that, that these things have as tools to begin to address the kinds of, of questions uh, that we're interested in. So that particular paper was very important um, for me. And of course, um, as everything in science, it builds on work that's gone before. And probably one of the, the, the key uh, people in the, the field before that paper came out was Yoshi, Yoshiki Sasai, uh, working in Japan, who did a lot of the groundwork in, in getting uh, stem cells to grow into three-dimensional uh, structures uh, like organoids. Um, he did, did some very, very interesting and exciting work on that uh, in the past. And in uh, the longer term, this goes back to, I guess, the 1980s when embryonic stem cells at that point just from mouse were first described and people knew that stem cells had the potential to, to um, differentiate, to become specialised, to make neurons or liver cells or skin cells or pretty much any kind of cell in the body. So 
there's a long tradition of making uh, differentiated specialized cell types from stem cells, but the ability to make these three-dimensional structures that look like normal embryonic tissues is much more recent, so really very much within the last 10 years or so. In terms of the second part of your question, what makes these things exciting? I think for, for me, there's kind of two things really. So the first thing is that we can grow these from human stem cells. So we can grow little bits of human embryonic tissue in the lab. And that allows us to study human embryonic development directly. And that's historically been very, very difficult to do. So there are um, practical and ethical constraints on what you can do with, with human tissue. Mm -hmm. So the ability to obtain this embryonic tissue and study it in, in vitro really is, is very exciting. And the second thing that comes from that is that we can use it as well as understanding normal development, we can use it to understand how diseases, specifically neurodevelopmental disorders, which is, is our research interest, arise. And that's because um, we can make stem cells from patients who are affected by a disorder. So these stem cells will have the same genetic makeup as the patient. And if we grow an organoid from those stem cells, then th that will uh, make um, a piece of tissue that will closely resemble that that's seen in the patient. And we can study what's happened in that, what's gone wrong. So the excitement, I think, comes from the fact that we can study human development directly and we can mm -hmm. use that to give us insights into neurodevelopmental and other disorders. Fantastic. So I guess that kind of leads me quite nicely onto our next question, which was, how have you used organoids in your work and what does that kind of look like? Okay, so uh, I mean, in my lab um, for a long time now, for sort of 20, 25 years, what we've been interested in is trying to understand how the brain develops normally uh, in the embryo. So the brain's an incredibly complex biological structure and it's capable of all these sort of amazing things. How is it that this very, very complex uh, structure forms from a few cells over a, a, a short number of, of weeks or months and it does that reliably and reproducibly uh, and the cells uh, you know they are given a set of instructions uh, in order to make this complex structure what are those instructions can we can we unravel the mechanisms that that um, allow the brain to form so reliably so reproducibly uh, during uh, embryogenesis so we've been studying that for uh, many years and we study that for two reasons. First of all, because it's, a, it's an interesting, challenging question. So, so I'd, I'd really love to understand how this terribly complex thing actually happens. Mm. And secondly, because of what I said earlier, which is that, that um, you know, if it goes wrong, and it does go wrong sometimes, then that can lead to a neurodevelopmental disorder. Um, so we would like to be able to understand what's gone wrong in these neurodevelopmental disorders. So things like autism spectrum disorders and so on. And these have major effects on, on patients and patients' families. Um, if we understand how the brain develops normally, that helps us better understand what's gone wrong in these situations. And that gives us a, a lead in in the fullness of time to be able to do things to help improve the quality of life for these patients and their families. So that's kind of the, the second driver. So um, for many years to study uh, brain development, we used mouse models. So, so different scientists use different animal models because you can't really work with, with human tissue. So we mm -hmm. use mouse and we use mouse because uh, you can make mutations in mice to order. So we and many other groups across the world identified genes which are important for controlling how the brain gets put together during embryogenesis. Mm -hmm. And in particular, we found uh, to, um, we worked with two of those, uh, one of which is called FOXG1 and one of which is called PAC6. And these are uh, tr uh, these genes in co-transcription factors. So tr transcription factors are proteins which control the expression of other genes. 
So they are high level regulators. So they, they sit at the top of a kind of a regulatory hierarchy and they give these complex sets of instructions. And both of these genes, PAC6 and FOXG1, they're involved in multiple different aspects of brain development. And we know that because we and other, lots of other groups around the world have been working on them for 20, 25 years uh, using primarily mouse and some other animal uh, models. So we know a lot about, about what happens. And that's kind of based on the assumption that how the mouse brain develops will be very similar to how the human brain develops. Mm -hmm. but the more we learn about human brain development, the more we realize that that's actually not quite true, that there are, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly actually, that there are many aspects of human brain development that are quite distinct to what happens in, in mouse. And of course, you know, human brain is much more, it's much bigger, it's much more complex, it does much more sophisticated things. So that's not yeah. really surprising. So we're never really going to be able to learn everything that we would like to about human brain development by studying um, mouse models. And therefore, for me, that's, that's um, as, as I said a moment ago, that's why I've become so kind of excited about the potential of organoids, because it allows us to look at these processes in human development. And what we've been doing is that we've, we've started um, by making mutations in these two same genes, the PAC6 gene and the FOXG1 gene. And I should say both of these are, are involved or implicated in human neurodevelopmental disorders. So for example, um, children who have a mutation in the FOXG1 gene have FOXG1 syndrome, which is a severe neurodevelopmental disorder on okay. the autism spectrum, very life limiting. And uh -huh. we'd love to be able to understand how that comes about with a long-term view to doing something about, about helping. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we started with these because we think that, that um, because these are very important regulators and they act early on, I think organoids are, are a very good tool to try to work out exactly what these genes are doing. So the idea is to make stem cells that have the same mutations that these patients have, then grow little bits of embryonic brain tissue and study how the cells behave, work out what the effect of the mutation is, guided by what we've learned in the mouse, but extending that um, into uh, the human. So really, in a nutshell, that, that's the, 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 the approach that we've been taking at this moment. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really fascinating. And as you say, it's really exciting. And, and I can see a lot of promise in this kind of area. Um, I guess organoids are also kind of a way to scale up experiments. Um, so do you see organoids, um, like how do you see organoids beginning to overcome some of the big challenges that we face in neurology? So I think um, that, uh, their potential. So, so um, really, probably in 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 terms of of what I've said already, which is just in trying to understand how neurodevelopmental disorders arise. Because, you know, um, with a patient, it's it's relatively straightforward for a clinician to describe um, what the 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 symptoms and so on are. So you you can mm -hmm. see the problem, but it's very difficult to know what the underlying causes of that problem are. So I think that, that organoids give us the potential to work out those underlying causes and that gives us potential to, to come up with um, ways of understanding how to go about trying to correct that or ameliorate the symptoms or generally improve the situation of the patient. I think the other area where people have started to use organoids as, as tools uh, in research is in degenerative disorders. So disorders like Parkinson's disease, for example, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and Alzheimer's disease. And again, these are you know, major effects on, on human society. They're very uh, devastating uh, disorders. Um, I've, I've said very much that organoids are making embryonic tissue. So I think at, at the beginning, I felt it seemed a little bit odd that people were interested in using them to study 
these neurodegenerative um, disorders which come late in life. So, so one of the, the, the issues with organoids is the time scales of experiments. You know, human, uh, human cells grow very slowly. Um, organoids are grown over a, a course of many weeks or months. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, growing them to the, the kind of age that, that um, patients who are coming down with, with uh, neurodegenerative disorders are affected is difficult to Im imagine that that, that that would be practical but i, I yeah. think the argument runs that that these neurodegenerative disorders are arising as a result of something going wrong much earlier than symptoms are appearing and that you can use organoids to to study in, in exactly the same way as i've said for neurodevelopmental disorders um, because it's very difficult to get hold of tissue and, and study developmental processes organoids give um, people interested in neurodegenerative disorders also a tool to start looking at what the genes and proteins that are implicated in, in these uh, disorders are doing, the kinds of effects they're having on the cells and how that might in the fullness of time lead to these later disorders. Uh, I mean it's possible there are other kind of implications for, for other areas of neurology, neuroscience, psychiatry, but to my mind those are the, the, the two main ones at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah John you've given a really great overview of how these organoids can help neurologists and neuroscientists study the brain at the beginning and at the end of life. But there's obviously two sides to every model uh, from, from uh, stem cells to, to mouse models. Now with brain organoids, are there any limitations to the approach using organoids that we have to consider? Uh, yeah, I mean, inevitably with any kind of experimental technique, there's always going to be uh, limitations and we have to be aware of those and, and to work within those. I'd say, I mean, in my opinion, two things really that are a bit of a limitation on organoids at the moment um, and are a bit of frustration. And, and one of those is that they, they're quite variable. So although we can grow these little bits of embryonic uh, human brain tissue from stem cells in the lab, it's not as reproducible as we'd like it to be. So, so it varies a bit between cell lines. Um, it varies a bit between experiments. And that makes it difficult when you're trying to disentangle the effects of mutations, because you want to be sure that the effect that you're seeing in the culture is due to the mutation and not just due to some variability in the system. So it would be nice if there, if there was a, a greater degree of control over uh, the differentiation process so that we got less variability between the organoids. The other thing that happens is, of, co of course, that these are, are quite um, artificial. So when a brain is growing in an embryo, it's growing in, in the context of the whole of the rest of the embryo. Uh, it's supported by uh, the, the mother. It has all these other tissues. Um, so for tissue to grow large, it has to be given a blood supply. So blood's essential to bring nutrients in and to take waste products away. And tissue can't grow or survive normally in the, in the absence of, of a blood supply. And in organoids, we supply these nutrients by growing the organoids in suspension in um, a medium, and that will work to some extent, but it means that as the organoids get larger, it's harder for the nutrients to get into the middle, and it's harder for the waste products to get out from the middle to the outside. And that means that, that often you get quite a lot of dead cells in the middle of the organoids, and then those will release things that will affect the behavior of the cells. So um, to my mind, Organoids are fantastic for studying early stages of embryonic development before that becomes too much of a, um, an issue. Um, but th this, this uh, does mean that there are limits in terms of how long you can grow them for. And the longer you keep them, I think, the more removed they become from sort of normal uh, brain uh, tissue. Um, the, the other thing is that the brain is one of the things that gives the brain its fantastic power 
is the number of connections that it has. So there are lots of different regions mm -hmm. in the brain that contain different types of specialized neurons. And these form these uh, incredibly complex circuits with each other to process information coming in from the outside and give rise to, to cognitive functions and so on. And in an organoid, these don't really develop because the organoids uh, don't have all these different regions. And if they do have cells that are like the cells from the different regions, they're not in the same anatomical relationship to each other. So the connections don't form uh, normally. So uh, there are ways around that. So you can make organoids which uh, resemble cortical tissue and a different organoid which resembles, say, a thalamus tissue, and you can culture the two together and they'll make connections and so on. But the actual overall 3D geometry of the brain in an organoid is not the same as it is uh, in the embryo. So in terms of forming this very precise circuitry, which is responsible for higher order cognitive function, that's difficult to reproduce in, a, in an organoid with the, the current uh, technologies. So for me, those are probably the key kind of limitations that, that we're facing with this technology at the moment. Thanks for that overview, John. One additional question I had based on your answers there, going back to what you said about variability. Now, this really surprised me when I first discovered it, and John, do correct me if I'm interpreting it wrong, but uh, with another model system, mouse models, um, there's kind of a, a hierarchy of of, uh, of these models, and, and some of the leading ones are, are produced over in the US at the, the Jackson Laboratory. Now, um, their mouse models on, on their website, you can kind of order specific mouse lines, you know, find a breed your mouse system. And um, what I find interesting about mouse models is that you know there's these these recipes essentially for how to create the the kind of perfect mouse model for a particular mutation a particular disorder and i'm wondering is there anything approaching that from brain organoids yet or different labs kind of using different recipes that produce these results are there moves towards standardizing it yeah um so there are moves towards standardizing it but it's not as standardized i, I think as it needs to be um, so so labs have tended to uh, develop their protocol a lot of protocols are based on the one that i mentioned at the beginning that, that madeleine lancaster came up with in that 2013 paper so that's been a very very influential uh, protocol and there are variations uh, of that and even the, the other protocols are not all that different so, so basically the, the protocols are surprisingly uh, simple and straightforward. That, mm. that, that one of the things that surprised me when I started growing these um, was how easy it is to do. So you don't actually have to add mm. all that much to this. A lot of the information comes from the cells themselves. Mm -hmm. You seem to know what they want to differentiate into and how to assemble and how to, how to form the tissue without all that much instruction being given uh, from the outside. Um, but that said, there is a degree of variability, and I think that it would be—I think it would be very helpful for the field if there was a greater effort at standardisation, coming up with agreements on on the best way to get consistent uh, differentiation from the organoids. But I, I don't think we're quite at that point yet. And it is, of course, fairly early days. I mean, it's less than ten years that people have been working on this, and it's only really in the last two or three years, I think, that that lots of, of groups have realised the potential come into the field. Um, and, and I do agree with you, actually, that it, it could use a bit of standardization. And it is, that is one of the key differences between an in vitro uh, system like this and the in vivo system of the, the mouse, as you say. Absolutely. Now, moving away from these kind of very practical questions, I know that um, there's, there's always some debate, especially within the, 
the realm of uh, cerebral organoids or mini brains. There's always a debate about uh, terminology there. And, and part of the reason for that is that some have speculated that the, the development of, of these technologies as these uh, organoids, especially those for brain systems, become more advanced, uh, there's the question of could they develop some sort of consciousness? Is this something that's purely relegated to the realm of sci-fi or do you see any plausibility in that thesis? Yeah, okay. So um, I think at the moment, the, these are, I mean, I mean, sometimes people refer to as organoids as, as mini brains. And I think sometimes that creates a degree of confusion because it suggests to people that, that what organoids are, are like little perfectly formed brains, but very small. And that's not really what an organoid is. So, so it's more like a, a, a rudiment, a fragment of tissue that looks very much like a piece of embryonic uh, brain tissue. So it's much more simple than mm. um, a whole brain. And what makes the brain, what gives the brain these very sophisticated higher order cognitive functions that allow things like consciousness and so on to, to, to emerge, are the patterns of connection between these different regions of the brain and as i as i said before that the issue with the organoids is that these regions are not necessarily there and if they are there they're not necessarily they're unlikely to be in the the normal anatomical relationship to each other as they would be in an embryo and therefore they can't kind of make these these circuits so they will make neurons the neurons will mature they will have um, electrical currents they'll make synapses with with what's around but the normal partners that they would make these synapses with are unlikely to be present in the organoid and therefore the kinds of circuits that you get in in organoids as they stand at present are quite distinct to what you would see mm. in uh, a normal embryonic uh, brain so I, I find it difficult to see that you'd ever get any kind of, of neural activity in an organoid as they stand at present that would give rise to anything remotely near something like consciousness and the second reservation I have about that is 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 the question of well what would the organoids be conscious of so you know we are conscious because we have uh, senses so we have sensory systems to detect our environment and changes our environment. So we have pain sensors to detect pain, we can see, we can smell, we can collect the sensory information from the periphery and we are aware of that and that is part of, of consciousness. Organoids don't have these kind of sensory inputs, so it's difficult to for me to sort of know what, what it is that they would be conscious of, as it were, so to speak. So I, I think it's important to, to, to uh, bear in mind the possibility that, you know, these are human brain cells and human brain cells are capable of pretty remarkable things. And we have to be very careful to make sure that we're not do, doing anything um, morally or ethically inappropriate with mm -hmm. organoids. But I, I don't personally have any concern at the moment that that is an issue because these structures are just so far removed from a human brain that I, I can't see that as being an issue. Great, thank you for addressing that, John. Now, what are your predictions then for the next developments with organoids? What, what is coming in the next 10 years of organoids? I mean, we're only eight years into their, their development, especially for cerebral organoids. So how do you think they're going to direct where the narrative neurology goes next? Yeah, so it's very, very difficult to predict the future. You don't quite know what's going to happen. I mean, things I would like to see, I think some of them we've touched on already. So I'd like to see uh, an emergence of, of more sort of consensus on protocols and, and to get a, a more reliable, reproducible differentiation mm. of organoids. 
Um, a lot of organoids that people make are for the cerebral cortex, and that seems to be, that's a very interesting tissue, and it's one that we're particularly interested in. And it seems to be one of the easier ones to grow. I think I'd like to see more protocols by which you can make different regions of the brain in organoids and then begin to assemble these into to circuits. And there's already some very exciting work from, from other groups on getting that uh, to work. And I, I, I think that that has potential for understanding some of the later aspects of or later stages of brain development that are a little bit harder to get at uh, get at, at present with the, the, the existing uh, kind of technologies. I'd like to be able to see organoids grown for longer in culture. So the, the, the issue I talked about earlier, where the absence of a circulation system makes it difficult to get these to very mature stages. I think there'll be ways of, of um, circumventing that and making better organoids. As I say, it is early days and these, these types of technologies often take a long time to develop and it is a tricky one. So it might take us a few years yet to, to get around there, but, but I'd like to see it going in that direction. I'm sure it will go in that direction. And one thing maybe that, that we haven't touched on yet, but, but I think is a potential very useful application for organoids is in drug testing, so sort of high throughput mm. screening. So certainly in, in other organoids like, like um, Hans Klavers in the Netherlands has um, a huge um, research uh, background where they've, they've been growing intestinal organoids um, from the colon and other parts of the, the GI tract. And they've been studying, using those to study drugs for treating cancers and for treating cystic fibrosis and various disorders and so on. So, so I think there's, with other tissues, there's an interest in organoids as being used in drug screening. We haven't seen so much of that yet with, with um, brain organoids, but I think that that has potential for the future as well. Other than that, who knows? Good question. Wait and see. Wait and see. Thank you, John. <laughs> Thank you, John. And I think that's a really great way to kind of end this discussion and pretty exciting as well. So thanks so much for joining us here today. Okay, thank you for asking me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that fascinating interview with Professor John Mason from the University of Edinburgh and that it's given you an insight into the challenges facing organoid researchers. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode of Opinionated Science. Until then, keep up with our podcast and our organoid coverage over on Technology Networks.